Hello, I'm Neil Ferguson, the Millbank Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution and Chair of the Hoover History Working Group. And we've just had the pleasure of hearing uh, from my old friend, uh, Professor Jeremy Friedman from Harvard Business School on the subject of his latest book. Uh, Jeremy is the Marvin uh, Bauer Professor of Business Administration at HBS, where he teaches in the Biggie Unit, Business and Government in the International Economy. But unusually for a Harvard Business School professor, Jeremy's interested in socialism. His first book, The Shadow Cold War, came out in 2015. The second is Ripe for Revolution, Building Socialism in the Third World. And that's what he talks about today. Uh, Jeremy, congratulations on the book. I understand it's the second part of a projected trilogy. Uh, how does a professor at HBS come to write a trilogy on the history of socialism? This must be a first. Well, as I said, I, I don't, didn't start out at Harvard Business School, but I think the big issue for me was just trying to understand the trajectory of the left in the course of the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, so we think about the left today, it's not the way we think about you know, the popular front of the 1930s and such. Um, it's not necessarily based on mobilizing the working classes in exactly the same way. Uh, and so I was interested in that, right, because the left is still you know, an important political phenomenon, and I wanted to understand you know, how it came to be what it is today. And so I saw the 1960s as an important inflection point. Um, and so the, the trilogy is sort of built around that transformation. Um, one book each for one of the three so-called worlds of the Cold War, the first, second, and third. Uh, and this volume is very much focused on what was cold in the 1960s and 1970s, the third world, not by the Soviets, but uh, certainly in the United States. And you've picked a, a group of countries to focus on, uh, Indonesia, uh, Chile, Tanzania, Angola, and Iran. Uh, uh, it's a tremendously rich book, uh, and I, I, I really encourage uh, people to buy it and read it. Uh, but, but let's just pick a couple of those uh, to zoom in on, and I'm gonna pick the controversial ones uh, that have attracted a lot of scholarship in the past. Let's start with Chile. Uh, what's, what's going on there? I think most people understand uh, that uh, Allende comes to power, uh, he's uh, a left-wing uh, president, and the United States is not happy about that. And there's a sense that the United States does uh, at least some of the work that leads to his being overthrown. You tell the story from a very different perspective. How is it different? Right, so the, the existing story is, as you say, is very much about external forces. It's about the role of the United States especially. And I'm not saying the United States was not an important factor, it certainly was, but I think what's been missed in this is the domestic politics and how important the divisions inside the Chilean regime were. Um, and for the following reason, I mean, you look at the historiography and basically comes down to one of two versions. Either Allende was just you know, a democratic socialist who was targeted by the United States, or he was a communist totalitarian bent on turning Chile into a dictatorship. And the truth is, he was neither. He was actually a Democrat who wanted to build Soviet-style socialism, which is a contradiction, it seems, because that hasn't happened. But that's precisely the contradiction at the center of the regime. And so there was always this tension about how do you maintain democracy but move towards actual socialist revolution? And the divisions over how to do that, I think, are what primarily brought down the regime. One of the things you pointed out in our seminar was how keenly involved uh, the Soviets were in the Allende regime. Talk a bit about what you found in the Soviet archives. In which regime? In the, in the Allende regime in Chile. Well, yes, I mean, I found that, uh, you know, there's every single year in the Soviet archives, there's a thousand page file of the ambassador's conversations with 
Chilean political figures, um, leaders of the Communist Party, the Socialist Party, the radicals, Mapu, others, um, Allende. He's meeting with them every single week. Um, and they're discussing day-to-day -day strategy of you know, what, the, what the regime is gonna do next, um, which bill should they introduce, um, you know, how should they you know, fight this election, what should they do about you know, a peasant seizure of land in the South and such, um, or a factory strike. Um, Allende resigns multiple times and the Soviets have to talk the communists and uh, socialist leaders into bringing Allende back um, because he's willing to quit over the divisions in the, within his own uh, coalition. Um, and so the Soviets are basically sort of managing the day-to-day -day operations of you know, individual political parties, you know, coaching them step by step. So it wasn't entirely wrong for people in Washington to think that this was a Moscow-backed regime trying to take Chile into a Soviet-style system of state control of the economy. This wasn't some fantasy. Well, I think it would have looked that way from the outside. Um, I don't think the Soviets themselves thought they were in control of the situation. I don't think they intended to be in control of the situation. I think they were just you know, a heavily involved coach. But in a certain sense, just like any other coach, they're not on the field. They weren't, the players control the outcome of the game. Um, but the Soviets were sort of calling a lot of the plays. Now, part of what you're describing here is the aftermath of, of decolonization. It's the collapse of what had been European colonial regimes that creates the opportunities, either for civil war or for the creation of some kind uh, of, of socialist regime. This is especially clear in the case of Angola, uh, which goes from being a Portuguese colony to being a major battleground of the Cold War in the course of the 1970s. What's your take on developments uh, there? The Cubans play a role in addition to the Soviets, uh, but, but help us understand better what's going on uh, in Angola in the 70s. Well, what's happening in Angola in the 70s, first of all, Angola has a tripartite uh, division of the, the liberation movements. Um, the FNLA backed by you know, the, the US initially, uh, later on by the French, Zaire, Chinese, UNITA backed to a certain degree by you know, the Chinese and later on by South Africans. Um, so there's, there's a competition who's gonna be the liberation movement that, that sort of rules Angola. And the MPLA is the one backed by um, the Soviets, the Cubans and others, and they end up winning in part because they hold on to the capital and um, have access to, to the oil reserves um, and therefore you know, are able to fund the war in a certain sense. Um, but uh, what happens in the course of that is that with the Soviets, the Cubans, the East Germans, and others, they kind of build a Leninist political system, um, which you have you know, a, you know, a party state um, where the party has the nomenclature that controls the institutions, um, they have a secret police, they build a very strong military, and they fund all this from selling oil abroad, which is being extracted by Gulf Oil, which is an American company, um, in part, along with other Western companies. And so you, know, you have a Leninist political system bent on constructing socialism that is being funded by you know, essentially Western businesses. Um, and so you have this marriage of uh, a socialist political elite in control of a capitalist economy still tied to the West. Um, and that you know, not only survives the you know, post-colonial war, it survives the post-Cold War civil war, and the MPLA remains in power today and still you know, in charge of the oil revenue, essentially. But in the end, uh, are you left with something that is still recognizably socialist? You showed a map of, of Southern Africa and said, this kind of quasi-Leninist model persists to an amazing extent. I get your, your central message, which is that they kind of abandoned Stalinist approaches to the economy, but they retained Leninist approaches to politics. There's one party and it's in charge all the time. But is, is there really anything left of socialism by the end? 
Well, the MPLA itself disavows socialism, so they no longer claim to be socialist. Um, but the regime that remains, right, is a regime that was constructed in the name of socialism. So in a certain sense, right, and nobody would say that Angola today is a model of socialism. They don't claim to be socialist. But the country as it's currently constructed is a product of the attempt to build socialism. Um, in a sense, right, the, the, the infrastructure is still there and was never removed. Well, at a time when uh, many uh, young Americans seem quite confused about what socialism is, uh, it's incredibly enriching to have a new history of socialism that looks at, at what it was and how it evolved. Uh, and I look forward very much to the third part uh, of this extraordinary uh, trilogy. The book, once again, is Ripe for Revolution, Building Socialism in the Third World. Uh, the author is, is Jeremy Friedman. And, uh, well, watch this space uh, for volume three. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Thank you.